Podcasts are pretty common. So what makes the Uncommon Podcast uncommon? Well, it's all in our name. I'm your host, Noah Weiss, and we at Uncommon Sports Group understand the unique pressures and temptations that come with a career in the sport industry. We provide uncommon training that helps you successfully navigate common challenges. Hit the follow button on this podcast. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Check out our website and become uncommon. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Uncommon Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Weiss, and I'm extremely excited and blessed to have author, speaker, and Christian apologist Abdu Murray in the Uncommon Podcast studio with me today. And Abdu, thanks for being here with us. Noah, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Abdu, as some of our listeners may know, you were actually on our podcast back in April. I didn't mention this to you, but yeah. we discussed the God and the problem of evil. Just mm-hmm. a great conversation. And today you're back with us to discuss mm-hmm. your newest book titled more than a white man's religion. And Abdu, this book is very timely for where our culture stands on the Christian faith. It it seems that criticism against the Bible and Christianity is almost less about evidence, but a lack of belief that Christianity is actually good. Mm. Um, And many people are even led to believe that the Christian faith is is misogynistic and racist and these things. And it's commonly held in our nation, especially. And you even write in your summary that many critics of Christianity contend that for the past 2,000 years, it has been a white, imperialistic religion enslaving people of color and benefiting from a patriarchy that oppresses women. I'd love to ask you first, Abdu, what mm-hmm. led you to have a desire to write this book? Yeah, so um, as I was, you know, I speak at a lot of college campuses, and mm-hmm. uh, the uh, typically secular campuses as well, and uh, we do open forums. So mm-hmm. I'll do debates and I'll do dialogues, and uh, with everything I do, I try to have as much audience Q&A as possible. And it's a free-for-all. They can ask whatever they want. Yeah. And it used to be the case that they would ask questions that were uh, highly evidential in nature. Mm. Uh, questions like, you know, how can you know that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Yeah. Um, are miracles possible? Uh, but the, the Bible and science, is that compatible at all? Mm. Um, was uh, Did Luke accurately report who was in charge uh, in the beginning of his gospel, or does history actually show that somebody else was actually... Is there is there yeah. anachronisms there? You know, these kind of things. Uh, but... I also started to notice that the, chain, the the questions in not only their frequency but also their intensity started to shift away from mm. more evidential questions to more moral based questions. Yeah. Uh, and while those are just as just as valid and just as important, it was an interesting shift because people started asking questions like, "Doesn't the Bible promote things about inequalities, whether it's race or mm. gender, uh, things ending in a phobia?" Yeah. Uh, of all kinds, right. whether it's religious phobias mm. or you know uh, homophobia or whatever it might be, and so it, it occurred to me that essentially people are no longer asking primarily is the Bible mm. true. They're primarily asking is the Bible moral. Mm. I, in light of all that's gone on, though, and I started to write this book well before. And, and by the way, it's it's not mistake. It's not lost on me right. where we're at. Right. Um, uh, here we are in close close proximity mm. to what happened to George Floyd 100%. not long ago. Yeah. Um, in fact, as I landed in the plane a few days ago, and uh, for some speaking engagements I have in this area, yeah. um, uh, on the issue of my book, is it more than a white man's religion? Um, it wasn't lost on me the profoundness of the fact that uh, 
Hmm. Uh, George Floyd was murdered not long, not, not too far from where I'm sitting right now and where I landed in my airplane. Yeah. Uh, it's not my airplane, by the way. It's Delta's airplane, but right. I happen to be on it. Um, right. Lest anybody think that I own a jet. Um, uh, but um, the, the rancor that ha- was even fomenting before George Floyd, mm. uh, and then the global phenomenon that happened in terms of ideas of racial justice and these kind of things that happened in the wake of George Floyd mm. um, have just been such, a, they've been tsunami-like. Yeah. And in the wake, what has happened is, is you notice this cultural surge that pushes people away from Christianity because Christianity has become politicized mm. and politics has become polarized. Oh, and so yeah. Christianity has, has been mm. pushed onto uh, the various shores that are there by the waves that are crashing, that are taking it. There are, there are Christian conservative people, there are Christian liberal people um, who have now sort of baptized their politics with mm. the gospel, and then that makes it a part of a, a racial discussion or a gender discussion in, in mm. Rise of the Me Too movement, for example. Right. And so Christianity has now often been blamed for mm. Um, the misogyny and the racism that we're experiencing or have experienced in the past because it's been associated with various political movements. Usually, um, uh, whether this is fair or not, it's not my point, but usually the sort of the the, the poster child for that movement is the sort of 30-something white male Mm. or 40-something white male or old white male, whatever it might be. And so um, I wanted to respond to that. Yeah. Because when I look in the pages of Scripture, I don't see anything like what the cultural character, caricature of Christianity actually is. Yeah. Um, some of those criticisms are fair when it comes to Christendom, yeah. like the way Christians have acted uh, historically and even presently. But they're certainly not always fair, mm. and they're never—they're not actually fair. I think when you look at the corpus of Scripture, when you look yeah. at the life of Jesus as well. Totally. So the real passion behind this Noah is that. Um, we are hmm. flushing the cure for our problems yeah. down the drain because we think that the Bible is actually the cause of the things that we're upset about. Mm. But really, what I'm trying to say in the book is that the Bible is the cure um, for so the very good. ills it's being blamed for. That's so good. Yeah, yeah and, and I think too, what's what can be hard is sometimes those those ideologies, those criticisms come from mm-hmm. the, the people that play Christ, right? Which would yeah. be the church and people that follow Jesus. And I, I once heard Frank Turek, who's in the same business yeah. as you are of Christian mm-hmm. apologetics. He once said that if, if someone played Beethoven bad, you don't blame Beethoven, you blame the player. Right. right. And the same thing goes with Christ. If mm-hmm. you or I play Christ poorly, which we do in some instances in our lives, oh, yeah. it's not Christ who we blame, it's it's the person, right? So yeah. I think many people who are non believers, they don't read the Bible, they don't dive into scripture their opinion is of, of the Christian faith is of those who follow Jesus. So yeah. that's a huge part of it, too. Oh, it's a huge part of it. And, and you know, some of the bad PR is earned. Mm. We, we, we earned that. Um, and it's, that's not the kind of thing that we, we, didn't, we don't deserve. Yeah. But Jesus doesn't deserve it. We right. do. He does not. Exactly. Um, and if you look to the followers of a religion, you can create quite a picture in your mind mm. of what that religion teaches. Um, but if you look to the founder of that religion, then yeah. you get maybe a bit, a bit of a different picture. Yeah. And so um, uh, what I love about the, the scripture, though, is that it actually predicts that its followers won't be perfect, mm. that its followers will mess up. Yeah. You look at the life of Peter. This is a, a bit of a side tale here, but it's important. When you look at the life of Peter, for example, so you see this guy who really is sort of annoyed at Jesus when Jesus is in the boat and says, you know, mm. hey, you've been out fishing all night, which is when you actually are supposed to fish. And this rabbi, this guy who, you know, 
at best, he worked as a carpenter with his hands. He didn't work in the fishing you know, mm-hmm. industry. And now he's a rabbi. So you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet he says, Peter, throw your net on this side. Mm-hmm. And you know, Peter's like, sure, okay, whatever. At your word, rabbi, I'll happily throw my net over here just to right. humor you. Mm-hmm. He throws the net over, of course, and the fish are so great from the catch that the boats start tipping over. Um, and the nets start breaking. So um, Peter says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, mm. which is a, a humble recognition of yeah. your arrogance. Mm. But then the same Peter will buck the system quite a bit while Jesus is out about doing his thing. And then he says things like, um, you are the, the Christ, the son of the blessed one. He, and Jesus mm. says, you have received this from my father. Um, in other words, you were given a revelation specifically, Peter, and what an amazing thing. Yeah. And then almost in the same breath, he actually chastises Jesus for his mission. And then Peter, uh, Jesus calls him Satan mm-hmm. in this almost the same conversation. And then later, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Peter becomes uh, enamored of the fact that the gospel is for all people. Mm-hmm. But then he, the same guy who rejoices over the mm-hmm. fact that the gospel is for all people, then starts acting like, I can only eat with Jews when Jews are around. I won't eat with the Gentiles who I used to eat with when, Jew, when Jews weren't around. And then Paul has to actually rebuke him. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see this whole thing. Peter's life is not a, a growth chart where you see this steady, you know, upwards thing and then a plateau, yeah. like a, you know, if you're charting the growth of a human being, right? it's a stock chart. It's got mm-hmm. its ups and its downs and its peaks and its valleys, totally. but the trend generally is upward. Mm-hmm. So the church has had, I think, historically, a general trend upward. Yeah. We've had our valleys, mm-hmm. and in some senses, we're in our valleys right now, right. but we've had tremendous peaks as well, mm-hmm. and we can't forget that. Absolutely, Abdu. It's so well said, too, right? There is those things that are sometimes negative and mm-hmm. those things that are very positive as well about, about the church and what Christ is doing through it, which yeah. is amazing. Mm-hmm. And Abdu, I think your story is very unique mm-hmm. in intertwining this with the book, right? Of you yourself are a man of color, mm-hmm. and actually you were a Muslim, right? Formerly, yeah. and in your story is incredible of, of how you became a, a Christian, right? And now you defend the Christian faith. It's such an incredible testimony of mm-hmm of God's grace. But what led you, Abdu, as a man of color, to believe that Christianity was actually good? So it's interesting because uh, as I was uh, going on a nine-year journey into the uh, underpinnings of the Christian faith, among other things as well, uh, one of the things, I I didn't focus essentially on the morality of Christianity except for the justice issue. You know, is the cross really just? I mean, how is it possibly just that Jesus paying the price for my sins actually is anyway, in any sense, just? Mm. Um, uh, shouldn't I be the one who pays for those things and that kind of stuff? I've, I've since re- resolved that in my mind, of course, but yeah. um, <clears throat> originally it was on the truth propositions. You know, is the Bible telling you what actually happened? Yeah. Uh, but along the way, I started thinking to myself, because, you know, as, a, as an Arab, as a Muslim, um, I bought into the narrative that Christianity is a white Western imperialistic religion. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, Islam felt more Middle Easternly authentic, largely because, you know, it's got its Arab roots and it's mm. got these things, but you forget, you know, because the Bible's most common translations are in English right. and the most common depictions of Jesus are usually by British people. Um, uh, so all these movies always have Jesus in these British accents and, you know, light hair and sometimes blue eyes. And so there is a contribution that we've made to the proposition that Jesus is this is basically a white guy who's playing Jewish mm. um, uh, yeah. because he, in the movies, is played by a white guy uh, uh, in a Jewish context. And mm. so um, I saw him that way, not because the Bible um, 
suggested he was that way, but just because pop culture did, and then Christians did as well, and you see the paintings and all this stuff. Mm, Um, As I delved into the book itself, into the Bible itself, I began to see Easternisms, you know, these things that effervesced from the pages, Mm. and I'm like, my goodness, that... That's the way my people talk. Mm. Those are the kinds of, you can almost smell the cumin and the garlic sort of from every page and thinking to yourself, where did I get this idea? Mm. And where do people get this idea that Jesus is a white guy Um, uh, as opposed to he is a olive-skinned Middle Easterner who, it wasn't the Roman Empire that influenced him and his followers or even the Jews of, of old. It was them who influenced the Roman Empire. Actually, it was quite the quite the um, the different stream, as it were. It was the salmon swimming upstream, totally. who changed the Roman Empire for the good. Mm. I mean, Tom Tom Holland, uh, not the Spider Man guy, but the actual the historian. Tom Holland writes, and I cite it in the book, uh, mm. in his book Dominion. He points out that he originally tried to find. Um, to, 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 to share the story of how the Roman Empire was such a great thing, and mm. it's the thing that gave birth to the, all that it's good in the modern West. What he found was is that it's exactly the opposite. The Roman Empire was full of darkness. There is a mm. couple of good points of light, but for the most part, it's full of darkness and immorality and awful atrocities. Mm. And anything that transformed the Roman Empire for the good came from the Christian movement within wow. it. So it's not that the West owes its existence to Rome. Mm. It's that Rome owes anything good it has to Christianity. And therefore, yeah. if the West owes anything good to Rome, it owes it first to Christianity. Mm. Um, and this is a guy who started off not believing this and not being a believer wow. in Jesus. So, and I don't know where his faith stands today, but I've, yeah. I've heard some things. Um, I saw this as compelling because... I was re- you, you have this bias against it when you're going yeah. through this process where you're thinking, okay, Islam seems more authentically Middle Eastern, even mm. though it's 600 years following Jesus yeah. um, uh, and, his, and his disciples. And yet you dig into the, the merit and the meat of the scriptures and you see all these Middle Eastern things that mm. are so uniquely Middle Eastern. Yeah. But Jesus has a passport with many stamps. Totally. And he not only speaks in a Middle Eastern fashion, mm. And he's relevant there, yeah. but he speaks in a way that is relevant to the West, to the Romans, to the Greeks, and even across time. Mm. Uh, so as I began to see that maybe I was believing a caricature of the Christian faith, and I'm beginning to see the authenticity of the Christian mm. faith in the scriptures themselves, yeah. in the life of Jesus, at some point I knew, after I became a believer, I have to write a book mm. about just how Eastern, Middle Eastern, and authentic the Bible really is. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's so cool hearing that from you too, Abdu, because of obviously your roots. I mean, it's something that somebody of, of my kind growing mm. up in, in, mm. in the West and really mm. having no understanding of the East, mm. I wouldn't pick that up in Scripture, right? Yeah. So hearing that from you, I think it's really encouraging, right? Yeah. And Jesus does have, like you said, a passport with many stamps, and mm. he transcends all cultures and, and regions and, and all peoples, right? And that's yeah. the beauty of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but to even really recognize that it's not rooted in, in white Western culture, right? Right. When Jesus was on the earth, that really wasn't even a thing, right? It yeah. wasn't that Western, right? United States, right? Part of the world, right? It, right. it was. It was not um, where it is today. At right. Point. It's not rooted there, but it does branch out to there, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's just really cool. Yeah. To, to hear that from you. And, yeah. You know, do I mention in the introduction that there are many critics of the Christian faith that are led to believe in some serious misconceptions 
which are very unfortunate about mm. the Christian faith. And, and what are some of the, those common misconceptions that you talk about in the book? Yeah, and I think one of the first, we've already touched on it a little bit, is yeah. one, of the, one of the first ones is uh, sort of Jesus is the white mm. guy's Messiah. Yeah. Um, uh, and he's definitely a guy's Messiah in some senses too. Mm. Um, so I think that it's because the, the Western... Look, there was a huge Western expansion of Christianity, obviously, right. when when it took root and took hold mm. in the Roman Empire, right? whether it was Constantine or emperors even before Constantine. Um, it obviously quickly spread in the West because the, of Romans of Rome's influence, yeah. um, and that's a good thing in one some sense. And in some senses, when you know Christianity uh, gets in bed, so to speak, with politics, it becomes a bad thing. Totally. But because both get sullied in some sense. Mm. Um, but uh, we hear a lot about the Western expansion. Rodney Stark points out, and I point this out in the book, is that Christianity had a tremendous Eastern expansion. Mm. And the reason we don't know a lot about that, or we don't, sorry, we don't talk a lot about that, is though, even though there's tremendous evidence for the Eastern expansion and for the Eastern influence mm. uh, of Christianity, not just in the Asia Minor Eastern area, but yeah. in the Levant, into the Arab Peninsula, into North Africa, by the way, yeah. um, uh, Ethiopia, Egypt, um, mm. uh, all these different uh, countries within North Africa yeah. and bleeding down even further south. And then, of course, west and uh, east into India and Asia. Yeah. Um, there's a tremendous Eastern tradition. And so we, we come mm. to think of it as this religion that is embraced by white imperialist uh, West Westerners, when the reality is it was global, a global movement. Mm. Um, so that's a big misconception, totally. is that Christianity was influenced by the West as opposed to Christianity mm. influencing the West yeah. in good ways. I think the second one uh, is that it is largely a male-dominated patriarchal religion. Mm. Um, and so much so is this that um, the, the move now is that anything Christian or anything that uh, smacks of um, biblical fealty, an understanding of sort of a literal interpretation. Mm. And I don't mean literal in the sense of a wooden literalness, but taking the Bible seriously, I should say, right. is almost like a patriarchal thing, like it's mm. against women in some way. Yeah. And there's some passages in the Bible we have to contend with that, that, totally. that, that suggest some, some, something troubling. When properly understood, I think can actually show the opposite, right. that it's not troubling after all. Um, <clears throat> But this idea that Christianity in general, and maybe even Jesus mm. in specific, didn't think much of women. Yeah. Um, and that's a big misconception as well. Mm. Uh, totally. Because, um, look, Michael Kruger pointed it out, that Christianity in its early years was being made fun of by the Romans mm -hmm. as a religion of women and wow. children. Um, because women and children were leaving paganistic Roman um, religion. And in, in some senses, they were leaving sort of a rabbinic Judaism of the time mm. for Christianity. Yeah. Um, and they're saying, oh, this is a religion for women and children, and we shouldn't have to take it seriously. In other words, their misogyny was, if women like it, it can't be serious. Yeah. That's ironic because the reality was women were not only flocking away from those religions because mm. they were inherently misogynistic, but they were flocking to Christianity because it inherently wasn't. It mm. empowered women in a way that nothing else had before that, and I would even wow. argue, or since. Wow. So those women knew better. 
Yeah. Um, and to say that we now know better that Christianity mm. is inherently a sexist religious belief yeah. or misogynistic right. is um, to commit um, uh, chronological snobbery. Mm-hmm. Like these women didn't know better. These poor women who were these morons. You know, no, of course, they knew better. Right. They knew what it was to be mm. oppressed and they knew what it was to be liberated and they chose liberation. Yeah, it's, it's so well said. And I think it's cool you even mentioned how the Roman Empire viewed mm-hmm. early Christianity. It really does show that it was a it, the way it viewed women was very different in that in that culture. It oh, yeah. was transformational, and we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But it is commonly believed, right? You just mentioned that Christianity is a sexist religion, and, mm-hmm. and and I'm curious, what are some of the key points you touch on to really prove that it's not just a male centered, male dominated religion? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny when you look at the the biblical story. Okay, obviously we have uh, a a name for those mm-hmm. who were the early leaders yeah. of the, the movement yeah. uh, of the Hebrews, um, we call them the patriarchs. And so yeah. we get patriarchy from that. Right. Um, and there were patriarchs. We yeah. forget though that there were matriarchs as well. Mm-hmm. And um, oftentimes they, they get downplayed by us, but not by the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so give you a good example of something really in the early stage. And if you pay yeah. attention to the, to, to the narratives of scripture, yeah. you see the heroines of the Bible um, are really featured very quite prominently, even in the Old Testament, sort yeah. of the most misogynistic part of it. And I put that in air quotes, so to speak. Um, <laughs> right. It actually has some wonderful heroes. So a given example of this is um, uh, Hajar or Hagar. Yeah. Okay, so Hagar is um, kicked out mm-hmm. of Abraham's family yeah. um, because Sarah wanted it that way. Right. Um, I'm not sure Abraham wanted it that way, but he didn't have frankly, the courage to stand up to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's there and she's dying essentially in the wilderness with her son, Ishmael. Um, and um, God blesses her mm. and rewards her for her faith and her trust in him. That's an early, early story yeah. as well. Um, even the fact that Adam is often blamed for the, the fall of humanity, yet mm. Eve engaged in the same sin is because um, it's not because Eve, you know, poor Eve, she, she couldn't have known better. She's not as smart as Adam, so we blame Adam more. Mm. But um, it's, it's essentially because not only did Adam let himself be deceived, but he was an active, he played an active role in the downfall of wow. humanity. Yeah. And so his moral culpability is actually laid a little bit more than it mm. is at Eve's feet as well, even though she was, you know, complicit in everything that happened, yeah. he had a more active role. So you see some things, even in Dicia, in the beginning of the whole thing. But mm-hmm. then you have um, Yocheved, who is Moses' mother, and she yeah. puts Moses, she trusts God and puts Moses in that basket, in that river, so that she can be, he can be of the house mm-hmm. of Pharaoh, but she can actually raise him, even as a Jew, yeah. um, uh, or, or as a Hebrew. Um, and she put great faith. And Miriam, his yeah. sister features prominently in that story as well as mm-hmm. someone of great faith and someone who often will um, uh, uh, stand up for what's true and what's right. Yeah. You have whole books of the Old Testament, wow. like the book of Ruth, where she actually makes it into the genealogy of Jesus. Women mm-hmm. weren't mentioned in the genealogies of great yeah. men, but Ruth makes it in there. Um, wow. you, the book of Esther. Esther is a hero there. Yes, of course, Mordecai is a hero there as well. Mm-hmm. But think about the, the archetype that, that Esther actually is. So here you have this woman. There's this plot to kill all the Jews by the evil Haman, and what she decide, what she does at um, at Mordecai's um, direction or encouragement is to enter the chamber of the king mm. to begin a plan that will turn this 
genocide on his head yeah. so that the people will be saved, but Haman will be actually caught in the snare. But she has to risk much and when she ha- because you can't go into the court of the king without the king first summoning you. And if you do it, you can die. So the, the king has to raise his scepter to you. And if he raises his scepter to you, he accepts you. But if he doesn't, it's, that's it for you. Wow. Um, Esther is standing at the door. And the, you know, the Bible doesn't describe it in these graphic of terms, but you can imagine the reality of it. Esther is mm-hmm. risking her life now. Yeah. And she doesn't have to. Wow. She could go on living in that palace, even though everybody else is slaughtered around her. And maybe you have to deal with her own guilt, but mm-hmm. she still gets to live. Right. But no, she refuses. So she's willing to risk her life for the salvation of her people. Who mm-hmm. does that sound like? Jesus. That's a, there's a picture there that she gets mm-hmm. to model the ultimate sacrifice given by our wow. Messiah. Wow. And that's a picture that God allows in history for her to actually fulfill. Um, and Deborah was a judge over mm, Israel. She yeah. had tremendous authority spiritually. Uh, there were prophetesses as well. And then bleeding into the New Testament, you see some wonderful indications of, as well of women who not only were given prophecies, um, who, who were blessed with being the, the mother mm. of Jesus, but you see even juxtapositions about the way men responded to revelation. So yeah. John's father. John yeah. the Baptist's father is given the revelation that his wife Elizabeth will have a child. Mm-hmm. And he sort of is like, ha, come on, seriously? She's old and barren, and so am I. Mm-hmm. What's the deal here? Well, because of his doubt, he's struck dumb, and he can't ever speak until the baby's mm. born. Wow. Contrast that with Mary. Mary is given an even wilder statement that you're going to bear the Messiah. And she's like, mm. how are you going to pull this off? I've never been with a man. And uh, the Holy Spirit tells her, essentially the angel tells her, and then she um, says, I'm the Lord's servant, be it as you wish. Mm. What a different reaction. Wow. So even in that story alone, you it's see amazing. a woman whose, whose, whose story is so much, is, is juxtaposed in terms of her faithfulness. Mm. And then, of course, women were given the ultimate privilege of being the first witnesses to the central miracle of all Christianity, mm. which is the resurrection. Amazing. A woman's a testimony was worth half that of a man, if it was worth anything at all of a man's. And so you would never, if you were making the story up, you'd never include a woman mm. as, the test, as, as, the, as the witness, let yeah. alone the first witness. Yeah. And yet the gospel writers do that because that's how it happened. Mm. And so Jesus decides that the first women will not be the most, the first, sorry, the first witnesses are not going to be the legally most credible witnesses, but they are going to be the first witnesses regardless. And so Jesus dignifies mm-hmm. women because he doesn't care yeah. about the misogyny of his day. He mm-hmm. bucks the system. There's yeah. so many, and there's so many other things Noah I could talk about, but yeah. these are some important touch points to see that the gospel actually vaunts women to their mm-hmm. equal place as, yeah. as um, to their place as equals to men. Yeah. yeah, Abdu, it's, I mean, it's so much, so much in that, right? And, mm. and I think if you really think about what you talked about and really dive into the scriptures, it's it's amazing how the Bible views women, yeah. right? And there's even, a, I forget the name, Priscilla, right, mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. a early... Yeah, Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, right. I don't know if she's an apostle, early teacher, what her role she's is. She's an early but, teacher, and yeah. she helps Paul greatly, Priscilla awesome. and her husband Aquila, yeah. uh, help Paul greatly in his ministry. Now, this is an interesting point you bring up, Noah, because yeah. typically in ancient Near Eastern culture, when you're going to list um, mm. people by name, you list the most prominent person and typically the males, and yeah. sometimes the males only. Right. And if you list the females, the females usually come after the males in the list. Yeah. Now... When Paul mentions several times Priscilla and Aquila, mm-hmm. 
what he should have said was Aquila and Priscilla, because Aquila was the man. Yeah. But because of Priscilla's prominence mm. as someone who had assisted and aided in the gospel propagation, um, at great cost to herself and with great effort and with great mm. zeal and great faith, he intentionally lists Priscilla first. Wow. Everyone would have noticed that. They yeah. would have noticed, why do you say Priscilla first? Mm. Because he gives her her rightful place. Wow. She, has, she has earned the merit of being listed first mm. and going against the tradition as well. That's so amazing. Yeah, and the, little, the little things that are so subtle, but they're really yeah. important to catch. You wouldn't even notice that, too. And I think yeah. it goes back to even understanding that early right culture and what, mm-hmm. they, what they believed about women and how that was all set up. Oh, yeah. It could really give you a picture. And, oh, yeah. You know, this might be a tough follow-up question, but sure. I'm, I'm curious, right, of, of Paul's writing in mm-hmm. Second Timothy mm-hmm. of discussing how women shouldn't speak in the church. How, how can we understand that from the Eastern context mm-hmm. in terms of him even in, in, in the Priscilla example of, of his high regard for women in that teaching role. Yeah, so this is interesting because, it, so uh, Kathy Keller calls these the texts of terror. Um, that, that there are people who are who criticize the Bible, women who criticize the Bible as mm. the text in First Timothy and the text in First Corinthians as well yeah. as the texts of terror because Paul suggests that a woman shouldn't speak and she shouldn't mm. even ask questions. Let her ask her husband questions outside of it, outside of the, the church gatherings, and it's very sort of domineering over, yeah. over women. Um, she has a very different opinion than those those critics. By the way, mm. um, she actually doesn't see it the way. The critics see it yeah. uh, as a woman. She sees something really, really different than they do, and not mm. putting women in, in a second-class citizen kind of way. Right. The first thing we ought to recognize is, you know, context is king. Whenever mm. you see, uh, whenever you see a script, a passage of scripture, and it's bothersome in some sense, ask yourself first: What is the context in the passage itself? So, what is the broader context mm. around that in the par- in the paragraph? How about in the chapter? Now, in the whole book, and mm. then put the book in context throughout all of um, history as well, what's mm-hmm. going on in history there. So let's take, for example, the, the 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 uh, chapter, um, where Paul suggests that women shouldn't speak in church. Well, three chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about women prophesying and praying in church. Mm. That requires speech. Right. Um, so clearly, he's not talking about you have to be silent and never mm. speak in church. That's not it. That's not what's going on. In fact, prophecy not only is speaking in church, prophecy is an authoritative act of speaking on mm. behalf of God Himself. Yeah. So women are actually allowed to prophesy and to mm. pray in wow. church. So Paul can't be in First Corinthians fourteen condemning a practice he literally just condoned in First mm. Corinthians eleven. Um, in fact, Paul ranked prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12 as a gift higher than that of teaching. Wow. So let's just put all this into perspective, okay, mm-hmm. in, in, in that uh, as well. What's going on really um, is that um, <clears throat> there is something, there's a historical context happening. It was a sad fact mm-hmm. of the time in the nascent first century church that women were not offered an educational opportunity as mm-hmm. men were. Most of them were barred from it, um, and so they, they didn't have the educational opportunities. And so most were not qualified to be leaders in the church at all, um, not because of their being women, but because mm-hmm. of them being uneducated. Yeah. And so what do you need 
in a nascent church. Mm-hmm. What you need is sound doctrine repeated and spoke, spoken of and taught responsibly. Mm-hmm. So the only people who were actually qualified at the time to do that were men. Yeah. And so what ended up happening was there were some women who were usurping power, mm-hmm. usurping authority without the qualifications yet yeah. to do so based on some errant doctrines that were creeping into the church, as happens with all mm. nascent religious movements, yeah. um, that were teaching things about childbirth being a curse or enslaving women or certain headdresses were going to be actually mm. um, a, a model of authority and you could exert authority over certain people who you had no right to exert authority oh. over because you had no qualifications. And so what Paul is actually doing here is trying to combat something that's infecting the early church um, because because it actually found a um, some victimization in women, and unfortunately, because they were not a trained clergy at the time, they couldn't be um, the ones who were the teachers. But they were also falling victim to some things, as some men were, by the way, yeah. at the same time yeah. as well. So Paul wasn't necessarily saying you can't have any authority in the church. You just mm. can't usurp authority that you're not qualified to have yet. Right. And so right. it was a matter of practicality. And people forget this. The Bible isn't just a timeless book. It's also a timely book, 100%. which means that it applies to us today, but it had to apply to them then as well. Absolutely. And of course, there were issues going on there. So if you don't mm. see Paul addressing issues going on at the time, yeah. then it seems like the Bible has been so redacted and edited to mm. make it apply to the 21st century, but it had to apply in the first century as well. Absolutely. So understanding historical context is really important. Yeah, I, lo- I love I said context is king. I think what's really hard for Westerners is we don't always understand this Eastern context, especially ancient Eastern context. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, I mean, a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, the, the big one being we don't really live there and, and we're not yeah. in that century anymore. But even Sorry. even you hearing you share that, I think, is is so powerful. And, and I think it opens up our minds to see how amazing God is and, and really caring for his people, right? Of doing what's best for that first century church and, and really how we can apply that today. So yeah. I think your, your description of it is so incredible and, and the context is king. I, I would repeat that to all of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Understand the context, right? Your book is in a great example of if we dive into the context, we can really understand a lot of what the Bible is really talking about. Not only do we, do we, if we dive into the context, we are we able to defend against criticism. We're also able to, to see beautiful truths that emerge so that, that create a positive case, not just a defense of the of, of, of Christian mm-hmm. theism, but a positive case for it as well. You know, um, when it comes to race, for example, and even gender, one of the um, uh, biggest uh, uh, criticisms where people have said that Jesus, in fact, was a racist mm. um, and that um, a woman had to put him in his place is the story of the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and says, um, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and Jesus uh, and the followers want to shoo her away. Jesus's followers want to shoo her away because she's a Canaanite. Okay, so she's not Jewish. Mm. And not only is she not yeah. Jewish, but she's from the Canaanites who are the ones who tried to pick off and destroy the Jewish nation centuries and centuries before. Yeah. So um, there is a racial animosity there. And of course, the story oh, yeah. goes that Jesus basically says, um, it's not right for the food meant for the children to be given mm. to the dogs, as if like you're a Canaanite and therefore you're some kind of a lonely, lowly dog. Um, and then she says, but even the dogs get, or the pets get the food that falls in the master's table. And then he says, oh my goodness, your faith is so great. And all this stuff. And he says, be, be, may it be to you as you ask. And mm. then her daughter is healed. Critics wow. have said that that's a racist um, uh, statement Jesus makes and that this woman corrects him. What I would point out is if you understand the Eastern and Middle Eastern context of the story, you're actually going to see the opposite of this, mm. is that Jesus's followers have already displayed 
some racial and ethnic animosity towards non-Jews. Yeah. And so here comes this woman, a Canaanite woman. The Bible makes sure to point out she's a Canaanite woman, right. um, where she calls him son of David, mm. um, and she is calling him Lord. And wow. there is a, a willing submission here. So he so lets her be a part of the teaching. In other words, Jesus doesn't need to be the teacher. He's such mm. an amazing teacher, he lets someone else be the teacher yeah. as well. So what he's doing, essentially, is doing a very Middle Eastern thing. He's engaging in banter to prove mm. a point. They don't always say things directly. Yeah. Middle Easterners will often engage in banter with someone to allow the point to be made uh, in a way that's almost almost uh, insulting so that if they can whip it around and say, see, uh, so you have the Jesus' followers and all these, these Jews around them who hate mm. Canaanites. Canaanite woman comes up to him and starts to talk to him. And he says, I'm going to respond how you guys would respond. Wow. And so I'm going to respond this way. And then when she responds back and I let her be clever, I let her say the, the profound thing, I'm going to say, see, guys, this is exactly the problem. Mm. When you guys act this way towards them, mm. she, that's arrogant, but she comes humbly. Yeah. And that is a great faith. Wow. So Jesus is doing a very Middle Eastern thing. And so when we import our 21st century white Western sensibilities mm. onto the Bible, perhaps we're being a little less racially sensitive than we ought to be yeah. and understanding the Middle Eastern context of mm. this story itself and seeing the beauty that's actually happening in that story. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. And I think that's why your book's so valuable is it allows us, right, of, of, of the century we're in and just the, the side of the world we're in, we can mm. understand these, yeah. these, these Eastern contexts. And, mm -hmm. and speaking of Eastern contexts, you talk about in your book a very interesting comparison of marriage and sex in the Bible mm. and in the ancient Near Eastern religions and how those are so different. So what is different about how the Bible approaches these subjects as mm. compared to those ancient religions? Yeah, um, and whether it's Roman or it's uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern context that yeah. surrounded um, the Israelites, um, oftentimes women were treated as property. Mm. So when um, someone hurts a woman in those contexts, what you'll see is the laws whether it's Hammurabi or other other law codes of the ancient Assyrians and yeah. whatever, um, <clears throat> what you see is that a woman is hurt in some mm. way, whether it's uh, sexually molested or hurt or upset or, or beaten or deprived of certain property rights. The person who gets the remedy is her father, mm. not her, because she's considered the property of her father, and so she's given away wow. as a commodity to uh, have a social exchange within those cultures. Women couldn't divorce their husbands, and if they could divorce their husbands, it was extremely difficult. Mm. Uh, but husbands could divorce their wives all they wanted wow. um, uh, in those ancient Near Eastern wow. cultures. But then you have the laws of marriage in the Old Testament, which actually don't allow any of that. Wow. Uh, yes, the, the fathers and the brothers are involved, but that's because of the harsh realities of the situation is that women weren't either educated or didn't have the financial resources to deal with these kind of things. But essentially, when a wrong was done to her, the vindication came her way. Wow. And by osmosis, so to speak, it yeah. was to, for her family as well. Wow. Um, uh, but And women could divorce if they mm. needed, if they had to, uh, from an abusive situation. Um, right. uh, you know, give you an example is, and, and this is a part of a critique of what the Bible says about marriage, is that if a woman is raped, um, she, she marries her rapist. Um, and that's like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. Why would the Bible even suggest such a thing? Well, that's not what it suggests, actually. What it suggests is that at her option, she can, in fact, become betrothed or married to the man who mm. raped her. Not, and, and by the way, there's no indication she has to live with him. 
Yeah. She can live with her with her brothers and her father, whatever it is. Um, he becomes obligated to take care of her for life. Mm. So he can't marry anybody else. Yeah. Because um, contrary to popular belief, the Bible, while it describes polygamy, it never condones it. There's mm. never a law that says you can marry more than one woman, 100%. regardless of David or uh, Solomon or whoever yeah. else had more than one wife. Yeah. Um, the Bible never condones polygamy. It describes it, and by the way, you'll notice something, it never goes well. Mm. In polygamous, yeah. it never goes well. Never. There's, yeah. ne- there's not a story where it's like, look at how many wives he has and how happy he was and how good it went. Yeah. It never goes well. Mm. Um, uh, so the woman is an ob- because the reality is no one's going to marry her after that right. in that in that culture. It's yeah. sad and it's, it's ridiculous, but the culture mm. was such, not the Bible, but the culture was such that the woman wouldn't get married yeah. again after she was raped and it was mm. known. Um, so she would be left destitute. Mm. In order to keep her from that situation, yeah. the man had to betroth himself to her, marry her wow. on a legal basis so that he would actually support her for the rest of her life. Wow. And she never had to live with him. She never had to. And if she chose the option of not marrying him, she wasn't forced into it. She could wow. have not done so. Wow. So that's very different than uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, mm. cultures. In fact, in some ancient Near Eastern cultures, if a woman is raped, and there's any indication whatsoever that the man um, uh, said, no, no, it was consensual or whatever, she can get stoned to death. Oh, man. Um, not in every instance, but in some instances. Wow. So the Bible actually takes this quite seriously. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, it stands in incredibly stark contrast to the, the brutality mm. of the ancient Near Eastern uh, laws when it came to marriage and sex. Yeah, and when you really look at this, Abdu, you realize how amazing God is and how mm. beautiful He is and how, how much He cares for His people. And I think mm. the biggest, I mean, we've talked about this in, in, in previous questions, but the biggest issue we have, we don't understand the cultures mm-hmm. that these biblical stories and characters are surrounding. Right. And so we fail to understand God's perspective of why yeah. this is the certain way it is or why this happened. And I think when we do put our 21st century lens on it, we can be, whoa, like, what's, what's, that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. I can't. That, that, that's misogynistic, that's racist. And mm-hmm. I think when, to your point in your book and right now in this discussion, those things when we understand the proper cultures are actually beautiful. Yeah. And it really puts a, a light on how amazing God is. Well, let me just, if I can, and I, I sort of get myself in trouble when I say this, but um, yeah. I think this is still a reality of it. So right now, for example, yeah. this is why the Bible, you know, to quote Henry Nouwen, uh, sorry, not uh, Henry Nouwen, it was... Um, uh, Oh, for heaven's sake. I'm having a draw on a blank right now, but I didn't say this originally. It's yeah. somebody else who said yeah. this, um, who I quote often. Uh, Leslie Newbigin. Yeah. Leslie Newbigin said yeah. it. He, he basically described Christ as our eternally, eternal contemporary. Mm. Eternal contemporary means that um, essentially that he is always relevant in all times, in all situations, yeah. um, and he is uniquely so. So let's take, for example, the current discussion we're having in the United States and across the West on reparations. Mm. Um, now, I'm not going to take an opinion about this. I'm not, that's not my point in bringing this up. Yeah. But right now, the debate is whether or not uh, African Americans should receive reparations from the government for uh, the ills of slavery and, mm. and, the, and, the, and the after effects of 400 years of slavery yeah. and what it's done to the African American community. So that's the debate. And of course, that's fraught with complexities like where should the money come from? And really, um, did, did the people who live today actually do the bad things? And if it comes from them, is that fair? And so there's a whole thing mm. about this, right? Totally. Um, here's the thing. So the Bible doesn't just doesn't regulate slavery. It regulates indentured servitude. Yeah. But even in that instance where that indentured servitude is typically voluntary and it's nothing like chattel slavery, even in that instance, 
when the indentured servant's debt is paid or they go free because of jubilee or they go free from whatever for whatever reason the master is required the one who benefited from the service of the servant yeah. is required to give of his own property and his mm. own cattle to the servant so that when the servant goes out from their servitude, they never enter back into it ever again. Mm. So you look at that and you look at reconstruction and you look at the emancipation. And W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out that the slave uh, felt the sun on their face as they enjoyed freedom, but freedom to what? And they found themselves back in a not a literal, but a quite a figurative, Mm. but important slavery as well because they had nothing. Totally. So... Had we followed during Reconstruction a biblical mandate to say, okay, maybe from the plantation owners, maybe from those who actually benefited from slavery, Mm. we're going to actually give land, property, or some kind of a a leg up Mm. to people who have nothing. Yeah. Maybe we wouldn't even be having this reparations debate right now. Maybe the, the, the things that we're wrestling with right now wouldn't have even happened. So... The Bible is often blamed for Mm. being a racist book and a pro-slavery book, but the very regulations within the Bible would have ended the practices of Mm. servitude of any kind and would have actually given servants a leg up so they never fall into debt again. The Bible regulates out of existence. If we had just followed it, the Bible would have regulated Mm. out of existence all forms of servitude if we had just listened to it a little more carefully. Wow, Abdu, that's so profound. And I really am just, I'm blown away. I've never heard that before, Mm. right? That's my first time and I'm really understanding that. And I I think what some people would say to you is, you know, hey, what about what Paul says about slavery? You know, Mm. it seems to me that he condones or endorses the yeah. practice of slavery. Can you kind of give, I mean, you kind of shed some light already, but could you shed, shed some more light on kind of slavery in the Bible? Sure, absolutely. So there were, so when we see the word slavery, um, the first thing we think of is um, antebellum Southern slavery yep. or transatlantic slave trade. And that's, yep. that, and that's right, and I understand why. Totally. Because it's the most, well, it's the most recent version we have of this. So this is totally. antebellum Southern slavery or um, the transatlantic slave trade, whether it's in Europe or other places, mm. um, was chattel, race-based slavery. So chattel slavery is when you own someone's property. Mm. Race-based chattel slavery is when you own someone's property based on their race as if they're subhuman. Mm. Um, the Bible describes that kind of a thing. Now, it, doesn't, it never really describes race-based slavery because yeah. none of the slavery that happens in the Bible, whether Old or New Testament, is actually race-based. Right. Um, right. Uh, it is chattel slavery, though. There is mm. instances where people are owned as property. Now, this is important because the Bible can be descriptive and prescriptive. Mm. It's descriptive in that it describes what's going on. It's prescriptive in like a prescription. It actually tells you what you should do. Mm. Now, when it describes slavery, it describes chattel Mm. ownership of a human being. When it regulates it or prescribes it, it doesn't have anything to do with chattel slavery at all. It has to do with this indentured servitude where someone owes someone a debt Mm. and that person voluntarily submits themselves and and sells their services uh, or a a master will acquire a quote-unquote slave. um, And that word can mean two different things. It can mean servant or it can mean slave. they acquire a slave, and this yeah. is interesting that we're talking here yeah. on a sports podcast, essentially, um, uh, or with a, with a sports ministry, is that when someone acquires a servant in the Old Testament, um, it's much like a sports team acquires a player. Mm. You're not really owning that player. Right. You just basically own the right 
for the, they they have sold their service of playing for that mm-hmm. person. Yeah. You don't acquire them as property. Yeah. You acquire their athletic mm-hmm. um, expression um, and their services that way under yeah. contract. Yeah. And there's nothing slavery about that. Right. Um, uh, so that's what we're talking about in the Old Testament. In the New yeah. Testament, you actually have a Roman system that Paul's mm-hmm. under. And yeah. that Roman system is chattel slavery. It's where mm-hmm. people are actually owned as property. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Paul, put this in context, once again, historical context. Yeah. So you have this upstart religion in a upstart province yeah. of Judea. Um, and there's a lot of, and there's been a lot of revolts and counter-revolts, and they've yeah. been put down, and things haven't gone well for the Jews under the Romans. Yeah. So you have this institution, this 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 empire-wide massive institution of slavery. Mm. And so, if Paul stood up and said, "End this now! I demand in the name of Christ that the emperor, you know, repeal all forms of slavery," Paul would have been killed. It had yeah. been, been over. Yeah. Now, the critic would say, well, Paul never really condemns slavery. Does he? Does he not? Well, let's look, look, look at the passage. And there's a passage, by the way, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, hmm. where people often would misquote Paul. They'll say, you yeah. know, Paul says, were you a slave when you were called to Christ, as, as it were? Don't let it trouble you. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was freed when called is Christ's slave. Hmm. Okay. That sounds like it says, you know what? If you're a slave, don't worry about it. it mm. You're free in Christ. Stay in bondage. Mm. That's not what he says, though. Yeah. Read the whole thing. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Mm. He says that. Yeah. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Mm. So that's the first thing you, you ought to recognize. Yeah. Uh, second thing is that he expressly condemns slave trading as a sin in First, in first Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. He mm. specifically lists slave trading as a sin among other horrible sins. Mm. So Paul does, in fact, condemn wow. it. But he has no political power at this particular moment right. to change hearts and minds. Right. Now, just as, as, as an aside, though, you have this book in the Bible, which seems like an odd placement in the Bible. It's Philemon. Yeah. And so Paul is writing, essentially, um, uh, and um, he's basically trying to mediate a dispute between right. a freed, a runaway slave named mm-hmm. Onesimus yeah. um, and Philemon. And he's basically saying, whatever debt Onesimus has, charge it to me. Kind of like what Christ does is he accepts mm. our payment, wow. so our, our, our sin on himself, wow. and he pays for it. So Paul is emulating Christ here. Amazing. And so Paul is basically urging Philemon, Onesimus is a brother in Christ. He is a freed person. Mm. Don't pursue this. Wow. If he owes you a debt uh, as slavery, I'll take care of it. I don't want him wow. to be a slave anymore. And then you notice something. Onesimus, this freed slave, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, Paul tells the Colossians to receive Tychicus, a dear brother who is coming with Onesimus, the freed wow. slave. Onesimus is returning. Mm. And as, quote, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you, he is your mm. equal. Wow. So Paul actually speaks against this in many, many ways. Yeah. And what he's looking for is a change of heart mm. that leads to a change of laws. And Amazing. the interesting thing is, at some point, the Christian message did that. It took centuries to do it, but mm. the Christian message is what overthrew 
millennia wow. of slavery. Wow. I mean, Abdu, that's, that's so amazing. Even the Philemon example, like Paul is ex- expressing the gospel through this mm-hmm. through this message. And I think we do skip over that book pretty easily. I know yeah. I do myself, but that's, that's amazing. And yeah. then even the Colossians verses of, it, it just really shows what God is doing, right? Yeah. In this in this context, in this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like you said, centuries later, right? Yeah. There was change. And yeah. It's about hard change. It's not just about law change, which yeah. is important. And yeah, describing what law is changing, it wouldn't have done anything. Um, but changing the hearts and minds of um, the people in Rome uh, yeah. and elsewhere, mm. that led to real change. And yeah. now we have, that's why Wilberforce had mm. as his two great aims, the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, he didn't mm. mean like, you know, where do your forks sit on the table? Yeah. He meant essentially the reformation of morals within uh, Britain. Mm. And it was it was those two things coupled together, the hearts and minds changing that ended up after decades, mm. getting the slave trade actually abolished. Wow. It's so amazing, Abdu. And I found this very interesting. You talk about early on in your book a little bit of, we talk about a lot of these moral issues, right? Yeah. We talk about racism, we talk about sexism, misogyny, these, these things that many people claim the Bible has, mm-hmm. has wrong with it, mm-hmm. right? But if, if God doesn't exist, right? If the Bible is untrue and right, all this is, is just nothing, right? Mm-hmm. There, there really are no morals to really be too upset about, right? So what role does objective morality play in these issues that are even surrounding the Bible? Well, as you pointed out, racism is a moral issue. Yep. Sexism is a moral issue. So if you were to actually be outraged at racism, hmm. you have to, you, you're already assuming the existence of an objective moral standard. 100%. So if you, um, if you think that, a moral, uh, 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 that morality is not objective, then... Racism is just inconvenient for the day, but it was perfectly fine back in the day when yeah. everyone could own a person as, as a slave and that kind of thing. If it's subjective, well, then it'll just change. Just yeah. wait a little while and things will change and you don't have a real moral outrage. Mm. What you might have is an evolutionary inconvenience to say it's not evolutionary conducive to our, to our propagation, mm. but that's not yeah. really moral. That's more of a convenience issue. Absolutely. So you're already assuming that there's a standard, that mm. all human beings are equal regardless of how they look or where they come from. Yeah. Um, uh, or what gender they happen to be. Um, So you're already assuming that moral platform, Hmm. uh, that objective moral platform. Well, what makes morals objective? What makes morals even a thing in the first place? Really, the question is, what makes morals actually real? Um, And and Plato tried to to ground morality outside of the gods of, of his day. Um, by saying that good, goodness just, they call them the forms, goodness just exists, and, and justice just exists. Well, think about this. If goodness and justice just exist as abstract concepts, well, they don't obligate us to anything. Mm. Goodness doesn't get angry at me. Goodness doesn't have any authority over me. Justice has no has right to, to make me act justly. Yeah. When I don't act justly, I don't offend an abstract mm. concept, um, and I yeah. can't be compassionate and therefore actually appease an abstract concept like compassion. Yeah. They have to be rooted in persons because things, concepts, aren't moral, but people are. Mm. And so for there to be a transcendent, objective compassion, yeah. it has to be rooted in a transcendent, objective person. Wow. And the only objective, so to speak, personhood there can possibly be is the necessary being, which is God. So for 
personal morality, for, for morality to be a real thing, I should say, mm. it has to be rooted in a person. Mm. And for it to be transcendent, it has to be rooted in a transcendent person. Yeah. And so our outrage at racism, our outrage at sexism only makes sense in the first place if mm. there is a God to whom the morality that we stand on can be attached mm. um, or rooted in. Wow. Uh, otherwise, it's just a matter of fashion. Yeah. And in 100 years, maybe it'll be fine. Mm. to subjugate people of a different color um, because it's good for the whole world or whatever it might be. Um, So these things, they can't be fluid um, based on our current sensibilities because our current sensibilities Mm. are an incredibly unreliable barometer for what is morally um, right or wrong. Yeah, Um, and I think this is so valuable, Abdu, because... We, we we know inherently what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is why these things really ignite our passion, right? Mm-hmm. It's why we care so much about these issues, and, and rightfully so in a lot of contexts. But it comes from that mm-hmm. objective morality, right? Mm-hmm. Paul says that the law is written on the hearts of, mm-hmm. of Gentiles, and, and I think this is so true in our, in our culture, in our world, of we desire justice. And, right. and sometimes, you know, wrongfully so, but sometimes rightfully so, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's it comes from this, and it's really an important part of understanding these issues in the first place. But knowing the difference between right and wrong inherently doesn't mean that we don't need God to therefore tell us what's Absolutely. right and wrong. Yeah. Um, we can know what's right and wrong because God has given us, as you pointed out, a gift of, of discerning that. Absolutely. But there's a difference between what's called moral epistemology, which mm-hmm. is figuring out what's right and wrong, and yeah. moral ontology, which is what is the basis for the existence mm-hmm. of right and wrong. That's and that's so a different good. thing. So just because we can... We can figure out what's right and wrong. Doesn't mean that mm. human beings are the source of right and wrong. No, it's like my eyes. Yeah. My eyes see the vis- visible light spectrum, but my eyes are the tool by which I interpret it, but they are not the tool that creates it. Mm. If everyone in the world was blind, light would still exist. Yeah. Um, so if everyone in the world was immoral, morality would still exist. Mm. We're not the source of it, but we are given a God, given ability to detect it. It's amazing, Abdul. Yeah. It's amazing. And Abdul, we, we just scratched the surface of what's in this book, More Than a White Man's Religion. And I'm mm-hmm. curious, if our listeners want to dive in, where can they find your book or buy the book? Sure, absolutely. Well, there's a couple of places you can go. Uh, one is it's, it's on all online platforms, yeah. uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, Christian Book, mm-hmm. um, all that. If you go to abdumurray.com, A-B-D-U-M-U-R-R-A-Y.com, there's links to various places you can mm-hmm. get it. It's available in uh, Kindle, uh, audiobook. Um, uh, I believe iBook or whatever mm. the whatever the Apple equivalent of yeah. audiobook actually or, yeah. or uh, uh, Kindle actually is. Yeah. Um, so it's available in all those locations as well. So wherever you get your books, um, and it's available in hard copies at actual honest to goodness brick and mortar book- yeah. bookstores. Yeah. yeah, awesome, Abdu. Well, Abdu, it was my pleasure and it was our pleasure to hear you speak today about your book, More Than a White Man's Religion, and we appreciate your time. No, it was my pleasure as well. It was great to be here in person with you. Absolutely, brother. If you want to get involved with Uncommon Sports Group and the mission that we are on to help you navigate the sport industry as followers of Christ, apply for our academy on our website at uncommonsg.org. That's uncommonsg.org. Be sure to catch new episodes of the Uncommon Podcast every Thursday at midnight Eastern Time, as well as the full video episodes on our YouTube channel. Until next time, we pray that you will strive to be uncommon by glorifying the name of God in whatever you may do. See you next week.